Made in Latin America. 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 Welcome to Made in Latin America, a new podcast brought to you by the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research at the British Museum. In this podcast, you'll be listening to insights and interpretations about iconic collections at the British Museum, as well as examples from the more than 60,000 items, of which many have never been on display. Join us in this series that will deepen and challenge what you know about Latin America. This season explores the Tolimpeya Codex, one of the few surviving pre-Hispanic pictorial manuscripts made more than 500 years ago in the Mystic region in Mexico. In which language is it written? Why is its blue color so unique? What stories does it tell? The podcast will be hosted by two curators from the Latin America Center, Laura Osorio Sonax and Maria Mercedes Martinez Milanchi. Indigenous researchers, communities, and artists working with this codex will join us throughout the season. Hi, everybody. This is Mercedes and Laura from the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research at the British Museum, and welcome to the Made in Latin America podcast. In this episode, we'll delve deeper into the pictorial language in which the codex is written. This means that there's no alphabetic writing. Instead, the manuscript is made up of pictographs or pictures that have different meanings. In this third episode, we'll talk about how indigenous scholars today are deciphering the codex with their contemporary indigenous languages. Just to remind you how it's going to work, me and Laura are going to have a conversation and then we'll have some comments from different specialists. And throughout the episode, you'll be listening to a creative retelling of the Tonindeya Codex read by Miguel Villegas Ventura. Young love, true hearts, first kiss. Whatever these words mean to you, see it now in this pair. Lord a dear jug of claw, smiling whiter than the smiles with anyone else. Lady six monkey, a princess no less, and happy smiling back. Let's say they walk, they don't. This journey is a static one, through those great depths of space within us rather than without. In reality then, they sit with the priest, a wise man. His eyes closed, grizzled, hard. It is less romantic picture, so let us say instead they walk, just a pair, arm in arm. Let us say she picks a flower from beside her path, turns it quick between nervous fidget fingers. Let us say he lifts her in his arms, playing, nervous too. They are laughing, screaming, evading grinning as they have done throughout their youth. They both want to delay to dawdle here among the flowers and embrace. Both will much rather linger longer, tarry for forever as young hearts, true loves, first kisses. But instead, both continue. Both walk on, spiritual step after step, toward the dark place. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Mixtec language. So, Laura, what language is depicted pictographically in the Codex? Well, it's the Tun Savi. It's the language of the Mixtec people. And I think where the Tonindeya Codex is different from perhaps a European book is that it doesn't denote syllables and sounds in the same way as as the Latin alphabet, for example. So they look more like ideas and 
sort of happenings that are pictured pictographically. But that doesn't mean to say that they don't relate strongly to the way that the language itself was spoken, that it couldn't be read. In fact, it clearly was read and it clearly continues to be read by Meshach people now. And so if it's written pictographically and all we see are our depictions of of either places or people or or things like how do we know it's related to the language so there are lots of different symbols or pictures inside the codex that are i think are quite self-evident i think they're self-evident to people who aren't necessarily from the mishtek culture so for example lord eight deer's name it has a deer's head which is pretty recognizable and then it has eight little dots so you, you can read that even if you don't know a lot about the culture. There are lots of depictions of Lord 8 Jaguar deer, for example, in battle regalia, which even if you don't know much about Mishtek battle dress, you can you can read the spears, the shields. You know, these, th- these things are sort of obvious. And then, of course, there are nuances in the narrative that are much more difficult to decipher. And I think that's where it becomes clear to me what a deep relationship there is between the contents of the codex and the way that people express themselves nowadays um, and must have done at the time. And the way that that is done is through much more complex compounds of ideas. So before we like dive into the different language devices and, and metaphorical tropes that are used in the codex and in spoken Mishtek today, can we talk a bit more about how the codex was read and if it was read aloud, if it was read communally, if it was read by an individual in the community that that was the codex reader? Yes. Uh, so that's the question that I think a lot of pictorial manuscript scholars have been Uh, mulling over for a long time and there is no of course there's no clear knowledge of how reading took place in the 12th century when when the Totonidea Codex is is set but they have looked at different sources both some colonial sources some indigenous sources from the colonial period from lots of other pictorial manuscripts to look at the representations of people reading or looking at representations of people speaking out loud and addressing um etc and 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 the consensus as far as i know is that it was probably something which was esoteric i don't think it was necessarily a public demonstration of and reinforcement of history or or necessarily ritual. It would have been a highly, let's say, weighty exercise. So almost akin to a religious experience. I don't mean to say a religious experience in a sense of a trance or spirituality necessarily, but I mean in the sense of how serious the engagement with the contents of the literature was. Interesting. And when we think about this codex, we think about Mishtek language, but but that's sort of a misnomer, right? There's not one Mishtek language. There's there's several variants. Some places I've read more more than fifty variants of of Mishtek language. And and when people talk between each other, for example, if if the UK English versus the US English, like we understand each other, I would say almost perfectly. But in terms of Mishtek, you'd understand like between fifteen and twenty percent, which isn't very much. Yes. So again, I'm guessing I'm not a Mishtek speaker, but I think that that's in part because of the fact that the language is tonal. So I learned a little bit of Mishtek when I was at university. And um, the way that I learned it, there was a middle tone and then there was a higher and a lower tone. Um, And what it means is that when you're trying to denote meaning, you need to inflect the tone of the previous syllable in comparison with your new syllable in the next word in order to show that something is either lower or higher. And so I think that that's perhaps something that causes 
a little bit of variability in the way that it is sort of transmitted in certain regions. It's also a very vast region. There haven't been enormous um, and long-standing efforts to standardise the Mishtek language. And so uh, naturally it's kind of evolved differently in different in different places. Yeah, and, and what they call like classic Mishtek is, is taken from uh, a Dominican codex, right? So it's it's an odd way to designate, I guess, the standard of, of a language. I suppose these are like the earlier, the earliest attempts to codify uh, the language. And there have been more recent ones, but there's still there, there is still disagreement between the Mishtek scholars that I know on on that standardization. The temple of death, their destination. They stride in, metaphorically, still smiling, to see what gods and spirits make of their match. The son of a priest, Lord Eight Deer, and high-born princess, Lady Six Monkey. Will any ancestors there give divine vindication and allow them to wear? Standing before them, tall and powerful and dreadful, Lady Nine Grass the spiritual guardian of the temple of death. She stares with bloodshot eyes that flay the flesh, and her skeletal bone chatter jaw judders with the click-clack spine straining rattle. They do not quiver, the princess or her love. They come prepared with offerings. The princess brings jewels and ritual robes to lay at the dead spirit's feet. Lord, a dear juggle claw is not so subtle. He brings a simple heart, wrapped in a sheet now stained with blood. He gently wraps, holds it out in his hands, and lays it by the jewel and robes. A face of red, as rich as any ruby. Will the spirit bless their union? Will the spirits bless their union? The lovers hold their breath. And so thinking about how the story of Lord Eight Deer Jaguar Clara is told and and thinking about the complexities of the Mishtek language, like how do you create sentences with pictographs? Like how do you denote a story and, and one that has such like interesting ups and downs and, and twists and and drama? That's it, isn't it? I think um, we would be inclined to think with something that's written in in pictures and symbols that the story is very simplistic in the way that we understand iconography in western artwork one of the ways that that's done in in the Dunningdale codex because certainly as you say this is a story with pivot points it's a story with high drama it's a story with murder with love uh lust for power uh, tragedy. And the way that that's done is through what are called disfrasismos, disfrasismos, which are the coupling of two words or ideas, concepts together. And what they denote is a sort of third word or a third concept that is ultimately a little bit more complex in meaning and somewhat subjective. So there are lots of examples. There are lots of examples of those things. Um, some of them are more simplistic than others. But all of them, as they are described in image, are 
are, I think, quite poetic. And they're still used in the Mishtek language and they're highly evocative. What are some examples of the frasismos that you can see in the codex and in other pictographic manuscripts uh, done by the Mishtek? Sure. As I said, there are some frasismos that are very straightforward. So one of the more straightforward ones, I think, is actually the frasismo for writing. Commonly, codices were written in red and black. The, the red, as I said, creates the frets to read the Bostrophodon, um, and the outlines are black. So those they're, they're sort of the core colours of the codex. Okay, so if you say red and black and codices are written in red and black, then you would imagine that that third meaning is codex. But it's not just codex, it's writing. It evokes something concrete often that relates to the two different concepts that you've got, but it also goes beyond that concrete thing to evoke a much bigger concept. So the concept of the frasismos isn't unique uh, to the Mishchak, right? This is sort of quite common across different um, Mesoamerican cultures. That's right. It's um, the frasismos are used, but in indigenous languages in Central Mexico, they're used um, in Maya language, Mayan languages. What's um, important to note as well is that not only is the, the the sort of construction, the sort of metaphorical trope of using these two concepts that to lead to a bigger subjective whole, uh, something which happens in other indigenous regions and languages, it's, it's also the exact same couplings of things that are used. Not in every case, but in many cases, the same is the same metaphorical tropes that are used. And so how um, are these languages written today? Like, have all of them just adopted the Latin alphabet just for simplicity and, and mutual understanding? Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, partly, as we've been talking about, some, some of the knowledge about how to codify those languages in, in pre-Columbian uh, Mesoamerican script have been effectively lost. Um, but yes, also, as it, throughout through the process of colonialism, they have been transferred now to the Latin alphabet, and that's how people, when they do learn them, learn them. Hello, my name is Miguel Villegas Ventura, also known as Una Isu. And today I'll be talking about the importance of speaking your native language. I currently reside here in Fresno, California, United States. Like many families, we were forced to migrate due to economic reason, displacement, and looking for a better life. When I arrived here in the United States, I only spoke my native language, which is Mixteco, to Unsabi. It is here where I learned how to speak Spanish, and eventually I also learned English. When I was young, I didn't realize that speaking a native language was something that was not very common. Everybody spoke Spanish or either English, but nobody spoke um, a native language. So I felt a little bit out of place, but tried to fit in with other kids. Growing up, I also faced discrimination, not only for being uh, somebody that migrated here to the United States, but also for being indigenous or coming from a family that are farm workers. The biggest discrimination came from the same people of my country of origin, Mexico. They will look at us differently or they will treat us differently. They will call us names. And obviously our color of skin was darker. This made me try to hide who I was. Um, even the state where I was from, Oaxaca, wasn't very well respected. For whatever reason, uh, we were always being discriminated. 
and I wanted to fit in. I wanted to learn English. So for this reason, I wanted to stop speaking my native language. My native language was always spoken at home with my mother and my siblings. But, you know, in the streets or at school or other spaces, it was mostly English. It is until I got older that I realized that discrimination and classism existed way before all the way back in, during colonization. Uh, at least in Mexico, uh, that discrimination, that separation from being native and being the common working people in the city. Back in Mexico, we do have a history of teachers forcing our parents and grandparents to learn Spanish, and they will prohibit for them to speak their native language. But that mentality that it was a barrier to learn Spanish because we spoke our native language. So that's why many parents also didn't teach their children uh, the native language because they didn't want them to suffer or go through the same experience they went through. Once I understood the history of my people, the oppression that we faced, I started to realize that I shouldn't stop speaking my native language. My language is a connection with my family, with my community, and with my ancestors. So I started to value it more. I started to speak it more, and I started to introduce myself in my native language in all the spaces where I will be. Our roots can be traced back for thousands of years, and you could find that in the codices, how long we've been around in this uh, continent. Today, what I do is I incorporate my native language in my rap music that I do, a trilingual rap project that I have. I also teach uh, the language. I give workshops. And with this, my goal is to show other people that it's possible to conserve your native language and still learn other languages, such as Spanish or English. You don't have to forget about your native language to learn other languages. So that's my message to the youth, to the people, that it's possible to be multilingual. And we shouldn't forget about our language because that's a connection to the way we build the world, our cosmic vision, our culture, our knowledge, all those things that our parents have taught us, our grandparents have taught us, and our ancestors have taught us. Lady Nine Grass, the spirit of the Temple of Death, shudders, stares, and then, with great solemnity, shakes her deathly head. The lovers gasp. She shakes again. The bone-made jaw opens. A voice like howling gales commands. The princess will not marry this low-born priest's son. She must marry to an ancient house. The noble lord, Eleven Wind. The old man is powerful. His allegiance brings prestige, security. Princess, you must do this for your people. This is the will of Lady Nine Grass. And if our ears were tuned enough... We might hear heartstrings break. There is no reply. There can be no reply to the will of the divine. The world around the couple vibrates with deep bass notes, as if thousand sea snail trumpets sound at once to shunt and jar the one smooth air in the sharp and brittle shapes. But you, Jawa Claw, are destined elsewhere. No little life for you. You will be a great warrior. Your path is hard, but I have gifts for you of power, 
and our arrow skull shield weapons or mystic strength a golden fish and a conch shell the ocean calls for you a blue stone bowl for the blood of your offerings and the last she says this with a smile a decorated dish for offerings of hearts with this the spirits fade the world returns the journey over and all smiles gone where we to make you feel in this moment you might expect a close up as a single tear as it rolls down our young man's face no tear instead within those dried eyes rage a flame takes light such that a tear from those eyes will sizzle in an instant it will burn villages and bake flesh that flame and that fire that stings the lids of Jawa Claw this day turns away from Lady Six Monkey his once young heart true love first kiss who must now wed another he cannot speak he clasps and unclasps his fist accepts the gifts the temple has bestowed and walks unceasingly unswervingly away the young woman is left with the flame of her own and a different path now to tread In our next episode we're going to discuss the indigenous community behind the stories told by the codex as well as how the object was made. The Mixtec people or New Savi which means the people of the rain mainly live in Mexico today although many have emigrated to the United States and Europe as well. Join us for this ne- next episode to learn more about contemporary indigenous communities and their living legacies. Thanks and until next time. The epic of Lord A Deer was read aloud by Miguel Villegas Ventura. This created reinterpretation scripted by Jack Monahan. is based on the Tonintelle and other mystic codices that mention Lord Adair's story. We are particularly indebted to the book Encounter with the Plum Serpent, Drama and Power in the Heart of Mesoamerica by Martin Jensen and Gavina Aurora Perez Jimenez and the play Recreation of the History Told in the Mystic Codices by the community theater Yeonyu Sabi directed by Maria Ofelia Porras Lescas. This podcast season is made possible by the generosity of Alejandro and Charlotte Santo Domingo and Mrs. Julio Mario Santo Domingo with Andres and Lauren Santo Domingo. If you want to know more about the Santo Domingo Center, please visit SD Cellar website, sdcellarbritishmuseum.org. This podcast was recorded, engineered, and edited by Prong Productions. For more information on Prong, please visit prongproductions.com. That's P-R-O-N-K productions.com. 